Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. As always, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and we get to now officially invite you to come run and hike and bike on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. A few weeks ago, Brendan Leonard and I talked to the legend himself, Buzz Burrell. And in the first part of our conversation, we talked with Buzz about his background, including his first ever long distance run, his starting the first organic farm in Colorado, the time he delivered a baby, we talk about his inventing the hydration pack and more. And then we get into Buzz's role in establishing the concept of the fastest known time. And we talk a lot about creativity and FKTs, the process of approving FKT submissions, and some of the trends he's seeing in the world of FKTs. It is an understatement to say that Buzz is an inspiring guy, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if this conversation sparked some new ideas and personal goals for you. And so with that, let's have Brendan Leonard kick off our conversation with Buzz Burrell. Here we go. Buzz Burrell, thanks for coming on our, our little running podcast called Off the Couch. Good to be here. You have an interesting life, I gotta say. Since this is a running podcast and you are very, you seem to be very adventure sports agnostic Correct. Um, with what you do. Um, don't particularly consider yourself a runner, but you do things fast, which it does involve running. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to start back. You grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I would, I'm, this is from doing some research, but your first ultra marathon was uh, self-supported uh, running from Kalamazoo to Lake Michigan when you were 18. Wow. You did that solid research. This wow. is before you or probably anyone listening to this podcast was even born. What's that? What year was that? 1969. That was before I was born. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oops. Um, yeah. But uh, so you were running in high school, but you weren't very, you didn't think you were very fast, but yeah, tell us about this this run. I'm interested. It was 90 degrees out. You didn't bring any water. So I said self-supported, but maybe it was more like non-supported. <laughs> a new category, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> it's not a new category. It's an old category. It's a traditional category. I mean, FKT world. Yeah, in FKT world, we have three categories, self-supported, unsupported, and self-supported. But the original is stupid. Stupid, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of in that category. And I think, Brendan, the way this worked is I was an active runner in high school. I was really into it, run, run, run. And boy, I just ran like mad and sometimes didn't get that great of results, partially because it was so short. The distances weren't that suitable for me. And partially because the training was a little, eh, we just ran our fucking butts off. I, a true story. One day, this is, you know, when I was like you know, 17 years old, we ran 30 repeated quarter miles on the track as training. Oh God. Yeah. Then we had a race. Then our regional meet was on Saturday. We did that on a Wednesday. So you couldn't hardly even walk by the time we got to the race. 
Wait, wait, wait. Buzz, what kind of pace are we talking about here for 30 quarters? It's about 70 seconds. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was just bonkers. <laughs> that sounds like a punishment for somebody who yeah. like, did. What did you What did you do to your coach? You clearly did something to really tick him off. Uh, no, we were, we were we were young, and they didn't have any science on it. We didn't have nylon running shoes. This was all done on a cinder track. Cinder meaning leftover from the clinkers from railroad smokestacks. And so this is what we did. This is what a lot of people did. So I think we are fairly tough and fairly overtrained. Hmm. <laughs> I managed yeah. to. My high school track was a cinder track, and that was in 1997. So. Hmm. It was still, yeah, it was just, yeah. And so I had these ups and downs during high school. I was really into it. I loved the sport, the feeling of running. It was, it was freedom. And was, there's such a primal joy to it, as all runners know. You don't need much gear. And uh, high school was a little bit frustrating because it was this up and down. As I'd say, oh, this is stupid. I quit. And so the next race, I'd go real well. I said, oh, great. So I trained like an idiot again. The next race was poor. So it, it was this odd uh, negative feedback loop, and which helped launch me for the rest of my life in deciding to do things for myself how I wanted to do them, because following other people's advice was not such a good plan. So after I graduated from high school, I sat there going, well, what am I going to do now? And I said, I'm just going to run from my house to the beach at Lake Michigan, which was, I think, 39 miles away. And well, how did it go? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, youth youth gets away with all kinds of things, doesn't hmm. it? When you're young, it's amazing what you can survive. And the whole idea of drinking water, nobody would ever drink water back then because it might give you a sight ache. Sight ache <laughs> was the worst. No one ever got sight aches, but you definitely didn't want to get, get one. So that's what your mother told you never to get as a sight ache. And you might get one of those if you drank water. So we just didn't drink water. And so I just launched down this thing and ran down the highway. And I did drink some water, just at lawn sprinklers that I found along the way. And then I got to Lake Michigan, you know, still alive. And it was an opening. I think, you know, speaking a little more seriously, I think you two can relate to this and probably a lot of the listeners, is I felt free. I set a goal. I accomplished that goal. Done. Boom. Right? So at age 18, suddenly you have this thing that never leaves you as long as you live, which is I can do it. Whatever I set my mind to, I can do it. And that's freedom. I, I have the the idea that you have one like these formative experiences when you're when you're in your late teens or early twenties or whatever, and that sounds like a lesson that we can come back to that. That's fantastic. Um, just logistically, did you just call somebody for a ride home at that point? Well, no cell phones, of course, but I had a almost not quite, but a sort of a girlfriend at that time, <laughs> and so she met me there. Huh. Oh. And this is a good story. Gosh, Brendan, your homework is is paying off wonderfully here because this is true also. We ended up becoming husband and wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you moved to Boulder to go to CU. Right. Did she also go to CU then? Nope. I moved to Boulder, go to CU. Uh, She did not. She stayed back in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I had no intentions of 
actually going to see you for very long. And I did not. I went one year and I was just bored, too many other things to do. So I left and I stayed in Boulder. And then about a year later, I said, please, why don't you come on out? So she came out. And, and loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we actually didn't stay in Boulder that long. We moved to the western slope of Colorado, a small town called Paonia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a lovely story, Buzz, but I'm not going to lie. My favorite part of that story is like the idea of lawn sprinklers being like the original aid stations. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I think when you, you, you two have seen this, you, you two have seen a lot of good athletes, interesting accomplishments. And how often does the right equipment prove to be the key to success? Not that often. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, equipment's good. We want to do it. We want to get it buttoned up and do it right. But normally there's something else in there that's going to get you to the finish line. Right. Gosh, you are retired now, huh? I believe you just said that. <laughs> I know. I just said that. I was thinking the same thing, Brendan. Oh, man. You know, I wrote a, I did a podcast episode about my ultimate direction uh, vest, the the SJ Ultra 3.0, I believe. Um, yeah. And that, that was like the key to my ultra running. Like, I'm not saying I was successful. I'm just saying it was, it was really, it was a fun thing, but, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think you're totally right. So you, you moved to Boulder, moved to the Western slope in your twenties. What are you doing? You're working a variety of jobs maybe, but are you starting to explore the mountains? Are you getting into rock climbing at this point or what, what's going on? Right. I got into rock climbing when I was still in Boulder. I did one year at the University of Colorado, so I enabled my cosmopolitan to develop. I got a chance to experience and see a lot of different things. One of those is to take a rock climbing course from Dr. Cleve McCarty, who turned out to be the co-author of The Guidebook for Boulder. So it was a fun rock climbing class. And that was that. I ran in high school. I took this rock climbing class. I felt that I wasn't very fast, still not very fast. And for climbing, I felt I wasn't that strong. So I kind of felt, yeah, all right, this is great. Love the mountains, love being outside. But I did something else. I moved to uh, Western Colorado to become an organic farmer. And I said, well, you can go to the mountains, you can do all these interesting athletic things. But then you walk back into your apartment, you flick the light switch, you turn on the faucet of water, you know, it's all fake. It's all this artifice. It's, it's not, I want to be closer to nature. And so I was part of the original back to the landers, as they're called. And so we grew our own food. I built my own little cabin there. My wife and I I had two children there on the farm, and we wanted to experience kind of a, what's the word, uh, sort of a core athletic style, where it's not about a sport, it's really about being close to nature. Sort of sort of playing, basically. Is that, is that accurate? Playing. Well, we, it wasn't much play. This was, there's a lot of work here. Uh, <laughs> I think it was more like the, the, the multi-day ultra. Uh, oh, okay. We, we worked, yeah, we worked pretty hard. Um, so how, how long are you in Paonia and Western Slope? You, I have in my notes here that you started the first organic farm in Colorado and you once owned the yep. largest vineyard in the state of Colorado as well. That is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had the first certified organic farm in Colorado. We started organic fruit growers cooperative. We bought a packing shed. We bought a, a juice press. We sold to, uh, 
the seven western states. So the story could go on a long time here, yeah. but <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's a way of connecting with nature in a different way. I think that did inform me later on, like when Peter and I did the John Muir Trail, in that being outside alone at night and hearing and feeling nature was natural. I, I had a different sensibility. I'd go. I learned to ski basically by putting on skis and trying to chase the deer and elk out of the orchard. <laughs> They're mainly in there at night. So I'd go out at night. And so you develop a different sense. You know, it's, it's not just like, oh, here's the sport. Here's the time. Here's the technique. Here's what the coach says to do. It's more of this tactile, intuitive feeling of how to move through time and space. Yeah. So this is a very organic way of getting into the mountains compared to probably, I don't know, right. a lot of, a lot of people, including myself for sure. Um, did you have farming experience from growing up in Michigan or just, it was just, just like, I'm going to figure this out. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, just, just, <laughs> I had never grown sprouts in a jar before. <laughs> <laughs> so you on-sited farming, basically. Yes, exactly. We on-sited <laughs> farming a 60-acre root farm. Wow. Yeah, so it was. we got buried. It was, uh, it was unreal. It, it was coming. It was coming. We, had, uh, we picked 7,000 bushels of apples that first year. We also had apricots, peaches, pears, cherries, plums. And uh, it was full on. And right then, on October 24th, in the middle of harvest, my first child was born. So I was out there picking up apples from the orchard and got someone came up and grabbed me and said, better get back to the house. So he run back to the house and you know, I deliver my daughter, Lori. Oh, in the house? In the house. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because the closest hospital, Paonia, is quite a ways away, right? Yeah, but that just doesn't... <laughs> This is this is a tough conversation here. I, I, I'm seeing myself in this mirror of your questions. I'm going, whoa, what? This this sounds a little crazy. I'm, I'm kind of getting a little. You're sketching me out about myself here. <laughs> oh no, I'm just. It's just interesting. <laughs> it was like af after you on-sited organic farming, you on-sited a delivery. Yeah, we literally did that. I mean, I got back there and started, there's this book, which I hadn't read yet. So my wife is in full-on contraction. So I said, oh, man, I got to read this book. So I started quick thumbing through the pages. <laughs> Where's the, like in the index looking for the, the section that says the birth? Oh, yeah, yeah. Just skip all that. Skip, yeah. It's birth time. You guys are making me nervous. Really? Yeah, well, we don't have to talk well, about this. It's just, it's like, <laughs> I'm just, I'm gonna get my armpits are dripping with sweat now. I'm thinking, what? This is crazy. I shouldn't have done that. Well, oh, I, mean, I guess it's too late now. All this FKT stuff is really interesting, but delivering a baby is truly, I mean, you know, that's true. Say, so, yep. Um, with zero like preparation for it, apparently, skip into chapter 20 in the How to Deliver a Baby book. Yeah, I've never seen a birth. And Lori is alive and well. She's doing extremely good. She's back in Kalamazoo, and she has two kids of her own. So all's well. Did you did you deliver your son, too, at the house? Yes. Wow. But we had an upgrade for Galen. <laughs> oh. Yeah, a major upgrade, which we actually had a midwife present for Galen. Huh. So, yeah, we had a – I mean, that was a good upgrade. Mm -hmm. Seems like it would be less stressful that way. Yeah. Bit. 
Wow. That's intense. So from what I, my research about you, about your life, there's some pretty sizable gaps. Um, at some point you move back to Boulder, is that correct? And you start, yes. like, what year was that? 87. 87. Okay. And then were you working for La Sportiva then, or was this, is that way too far? In the future. Yeah, a little bit too far. So okay. I was doing fine in Peonia. We had you know, the farm, we had the family. And then unfortunately, my wife and I separated with our two kids. Mm-hmm. And then she moved back to Michigan uh, with Lori and Galen. I stayed in Peonia and did a few things. I got into skiing. I did some ski races, uh, some of the early ski races. I did you know, a lot of mountain biking. I was one of the early mountain bikers, the Pearl Pass Tour. I was the first person to bike the White Rim in a day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, this could go on a little too long. And then I decided I was just kind of getting tired of the whole shtick, you know, just stuff. I had girlfriends, I had business, I had all these things I was doing. And and there's a little bit of, okay, well, what's me? It was kind of time to take a little breather here and see what was up. So I actually just quit sport. I quit the girlfriends, and I went to Asia for six months. And that was a big milestone. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. The rest of it is sort of starts to sound embarrassing. Like, whoa, <laughs> I got to be making this up. You know, um, not to interrupt you, but I did just see a photo um, Tony Krupishka posted of you biking in Asia, I believe, at this exact time. They just put it on Instagram like a couple weeks ago, maybe. He is, put that on? Yeah. <laughs> It's, oh, I'm not it's, on Instagram. It's awesome. It's such a good photo. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not on Instagram. That bike, uh, wow. yeah. But that, yeah. I'd love to hear that story. Th- this, this was meaningful to me. It was a big milestone. I dropped everything. And sometimes that's what you do. You know, there's streakers, right? People have done run every day for 20 years. People have done the same race every year for 15 years. I'm the opposite. I only do things that I feel correct in the moment for. So I'm literally the opposite of a streaker. And I wasn't feeling comfortable with who I was, how I was living my life. So I dropped it all and I bought a one-way ticket to Asia. And I started off in Japan, then went to Bangkok, and then flew into Kathmandu. And suddenly it was like, oh, okay, I liked it. I like Kathmandu. I like being in Nepal. As Kipling said, the wildest dreams of Q are the facts in Kathmandu. It was an epic place. It was like a crossroads of a certain uh, energetic, spiritual places in the world. And I also had my bike with me. And so I was riding around and I thought, you know, I'm going to ride to Tibet. And so, wow, here I go again. So pardon me for giving you the gory details of no. this. Okay. <laughs> but you couldn't get a visa. Tibet actually is part of China. And so a few of us got together. Gosh, I, my armpits are sweating again telling you this. And we gave $100 to one person and gave him our passports and told him to fly to Hong Kong, get Chinese visas for us, and fly back and give us our passports back. And he did it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, kids don't try this at home. Yeah, what could go and, wrong? Yeah, what, what could go wrong with that plan? And then in the meantime, I was learning how to speak Tibetan. So, I can speak a little Tibetan, which is kind of how I wanted to work it. I didn't want to get on the tourist bus. 
And so I, on a full moon, on a full moon eclipse in April, I got on my bike and just rode north. And uh, three weeks later, I had ridden over five mountain passes, three of them over 17,000 feet, and was in Lhasa, Tibet. And, and what happens there? <laughs> well, I think it's, the, it's, sorry to use a cliche, but it's a journey, right? It's not a goal. So it's what are you doing? And I think what I wanted to have happen definitely did happen. So if you're in the bus, carrying your bubble with you. There's this wall, there's this window, you look out the window and go, oh, wow, look at that. And then if you don't, can't handle it, you just roll up the window and pick up your book and read your book. But on your bike, you're raw, you're there. It's nothing but you, you see what I mean? There's, there's no cultural bubble between you and what one is experiencing. And since I could speak a little Tibetan, I didn't actually bring food, I was just finding food along the way. You'd come into a little village and you know the, the woman would come running up. By the way, it's sort of a matrilinear culture there, kind of like the Hopi. They're very similar to the Hopis. And so the women are fairly bold. They come running up and they start pulling on the hair in my arm, you know, because they say, well, look at this. I got, I have body hair. And I, you know, make little jokes like, which means, you know, I'm like a cat. And they just yuck it up. We'd all yuck it up. And then we'd go back into the little hut and drink chong. And so it was a way of sort of stripping away any artifice, stripping away sense of ego identity, like who am I, what's my accomplishment, even what's my name, and being able to be in a place with other people, just raw, just with who I am. How old are you when, this is, when you're doing this trip? I'd be 35 when I took that trip. Wow. Yeah. And so then I get to uh, Lhasa. And guys, I mean, sorry, this, this, is, this is amazing stuff because La is the Tibetan word for heaven and Sa is the Tibetan word for earth. So Lhasa, the capital, means heaven and earth. So that's how those people think. That's how that culture is built. And so here we are coming from a very material culture into a very spiritual culture. And so I, the yin and the yang were just wonderful to experience, particularly back then when very few Westerners had been there. And so I lived in Lhasa for a month, just taking it in, going on pilgrimage, doing a lot of meditation. And then I did another month of pilgrimage where I just went to the well-known pilgrimage sites in Utsang, that province. And then finally, I uh, crossed back in, uh, back into Nepal. And at some point, you're just finally like, okay, I think it's time to head back. Yeah, that's that's a good question. That's a very good question, Brendan, because why? I mean, I, I felt at home. But at some point, it's like your karma sort of comes back around. The who am I starts to get answered. And I'm not there. That's not me. I have a different dharmic path, different path to walk in this earth. And you kind of get it. Say, okay, I'm relaxed about this now. I'm not rebelling. I'm not struggling to bust out. I'm not trying to be something else. It's like, okay, I, I, I see who I am. I'm going to head back in. I'm going to make peace with America. American culture is something I've always felt a little sketched about and uh, make peace with what's going on there, the politics, the lifestyle, and be who I am there. And so you returned to Boulder then? This is 1985, 6? That would have been uh, 
86, actually, I returned to Paonia. That's how this question mm. got going. Okay. Right. So I returned to Paonia, and there I was, and I thought, you know, I've kind of run out here. There's, <laughs> there's nothing else to do here. And that's when I moved down to Boulder. I just said, okay, what else is there here? And I came down to Boulder with pesos. And <laughs> you know, I was a landowner, right? I was a business owner. I was a landowner. I was kind of one of those folks. And you come down to Boulder and it's, whoa, you know, the conversion rate is eight to one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was out of my league, so to speak. And so I came down here. I just took, uh, I think I worked, what did I do? I worked on a concrete crew, you know, just took day labor jobs. Concrete, I worked as a carpenter. Did various things like that. You know, anyone who's ever been a rock climber, I think, has once been a carpenter. I think that's part of the trade. And I just kind of rebuilt life in America slowly. Are you are you having moments of doubt at all during this? Are you going, what the hell am I doing with my life at, at any point? Or is it just kind of uh, like, yeah. Yeah, that's, no, that's, a, that's a good question. And, uh, yeah, you just have uh, – a sense of where you belong and what you should be doing, and you have to stick to that. But uh, when I left the bet, you know, I, I was crying. I just cried for a couple hours. It was, uh, I felt at home. And to reintegrate into the American culture was, rather than going back and saying, oh, yeah, I get to drink beer and eat pizza, wee. I, I, that wasn't really how I was feeling about it. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I can't imagine that the shock at that time, even it's not like many people, it's not like photos of Lhasa were widely, it's not like they're on Instagram, you know, we're not as connected as we were. So it's like a big, much bigger jump, I imagine. Right. Right. So Brendan, uh, thank you for this conversation. It's amazing to me because I, I rarely think about this. So I'm delighted to be reminded. It's emotionally moving to me to be reminded and some of it sounds like, whoa, hopefully I'm not giving anyone bad advice here. <laughs> right. This is not an advice <laughs> podcast. We should just say that at the beginning. Of okay, good. <laughs> okay, good. I mean, it's like you read the REI thing and it's like you gotta can't walk outside the door unless you carry your signal mirror and your first aid kit and your you know, spare matches. And it's like, whoa, okay, well, I'm not really saying that. And so I <laughs> yeah. don't want to sound like we all should be crazy, not saying that in the slightest. I'm just telling you what happened to me. And you survived. So that's, we're fine. Yeah, we're good. Okay. At some point here, I, I'm looking 1995, you ran the Superior Fall Trail Race, which is a hundred miler. So where do we go from you moving to Boulder are you getting more and more into trail running? I mean, you don't you don't just you know sign up for a hundred mile race on a whim and be like, "I'll oh, see how this goes." Like, you right? Then, was there a little bit more running coming into your life at that point? I started in Paonia, okay, and I think that's a I, I like this story a lot. So as I mentioned, I had uh, felt I was too slow for running. You know, high school is, is two miles, by the way. That's your maximum distance mm -hmm. in those days. Two is a little short for me. And I got into rock climbing in Boulder. I didn't feel strong enough. So then I was out in Paonia, and my parents were visiting, and they brought about a Sunday Grand Junction Daily Sentinel. And in the Sunday sports section was a photo of Rick Trujillo. 
Okay. Now, this is an epic guy, might be before your time, but Rick Trujillo is, you know, a good story. You got to get Rick on the podcast, except he's, he's crazier than I am in a different <laughs> way. And Rick was doing something called the Pikes Peak Marathon. Mm, okay. And there's a light bulb just went off. Oh, so running and mountain. I can do that. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it was like, the, this was it. The, that flat running was too hard too quick, wasn't that interesting. Climbing, okay, a little slow, a little steep, but mountain running, boom, I'm all over that. And the Daily Sentinel article mentioned that the race was uh, this coming Sunday. And I thought, well, okay. Um, we had a you know, eight-month-old daughter and wasn't sure how to deal with this. We're working the farm pretty hard. We're picking peaches. But my uh, parents were visiting, so they watched Lori. My wife, Jan, and I just got in the back of our AMC, got in the, our AMC Javelin and drove down to the start line up there at uh, Ruxton Park in Manitou Springs. I didn't enter the race. I mean, like, in a race, why would I want to enter a race? I just flopped out on the pavement. And then next morning, a bunch of people in these shiny new shoes and nylon running shorts showed up. And we said, oh, okay. You know, threw the sleeping bag back in the car. And then I just lined up and they said, go, I went. And so that was how I got into mountain running. And I didn't kind of, ooh, another bad story here. Oh, jeez. Uh, I didn't enter. I didn't pay the entry fee. So I, I wouldn't stop at the aid stations. And so I did the Pikes Peak Marathon <laughs> without eating or drinking, <laughs> which oh. again, not a clever idea, but that's just how my first Pikes Peak went. But it was it was fun enough that you decided to continue. Yeah, yeah, because you know the combination was great. So I got into Pikes Peak, and of course Trujillo won it. Rick won it, I think, five years in a row. Rick and I became friends, and then a few other early mountain races opened up in Colorado. One was the Imogene Pass. Mm-hmm. If you see an early photo of the very first imaging pass run there's me on the starting line which is basically right out in front of rick's house there used to be you're in crested butte jonathan it used to be the crested butte mountain marathon hmm. which which went from downtown to the top of mount crested butte very <laughs> very cool course and went right up that tailless field right to the very summit so i did the first couple of years of that so I had that mountain running background. I did Pikes Peak for like, I forget now. I think I've done it 10 times. But the first uh, uh, three times, I, I didn't enter. I, gosh, more poor form on my part. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just showed up and ran it. Because, again, <laughs> as you can kind of get the, the drift here, I don't care about the external, right? It's just the prize, the award, the goal. I don't really relate to it that much. I care about my inner experience, and I could get the inner experience without entering just as easy as I could by entering. In a way, there's less distractions because there's no award ceremony for me. So I was into Pikes Peak. I did some of the early mountain races. And then here in Boulder, they this thing called ultra running started up, and that started up with unquestionably with Western States, with the Tevis Cup, which was a horse race, as you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they, they did the Superior Trail 100. And I'm originally from Michigan. So I said, yeah, Superior Trail, that's good. I'll go back. And the Superior Trail became my first 100. 
did you you did the Leadville 100 in 1998? Were you doing a lot of races during during the mid to late 90s or not really? Okay, well, again, that's an excellent question. No, because races obviously became the thing. And I, I was never that active of a racer. Like I said, it's like why pay the money when I could just go do it by myself? <laughs> you know, so either either my logic is sound or it's whacked. I mean, who knows? I can't tell the difference sometimes myself. But I would just say, well, heck, there's a pretty good course. I could just go do this course. I, why give them any money? I don't care about aid. I don't care about other people. So what the heck? Uh, now, that's all to say that I appreciate races. I actually love competition. I love, I'm a very competitive person, but I just don't need to do it. And so as you can kind of get the drift here, when uh, we started to think about projects, which later became known as FKTs, it was a natural fit for me. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like you just invented your own game. Um, That's right. To not to not do the the standard, like line up with everybody, do the same thing. Just like, I'm just going to make my own race and do it by myself. And it is more, much more adventurous that way, as opposed to aid stations and stuff. I had never thought of it in those terms, but you're probably correct, Brendan. I basically invented what worked for me. Yeah, well, and it turns out it works for a lot of other people too uh, at this point. Um, this is great. This is a great transition though. Um, so you, at, and what's interesting about this is that you're not like in your early 30s or like quote unquote the prime of, you know, whatever athletic uh, that we view as people's prime when you start doing these things. And also the term doesn't exist for fastest known time. But is 1999 you decided to try to do the fastest, like break the record on the Colorado Trail? Or was there a record at that point when you did it? Yes, but it was fairly soft, to be okay. honest. Mm-hmm. And that that's another milestone, Brendan, the Colorado Trail run. Because up until that time, I've just been doing a shit ton of things. I mean, I just travel everywhere I go. I'd say, oh, look at that. Get out of the car, run it. And I was technically very good. And I was a good seat of the pants navigator because of this background that we've been talking about, right? I mean, look at the what you've just kind of set up here, Brendan. I run to Lake Michigan with you know, no support. So there's this, a certain perseverance aspect there. And, and then uh, I'm on the farm. I'm, you know, you know, skiing and running around at night, chasing the deer out, doing things like that. So I have this sense of being outside. You know, I can smell things, right? I don't have to see things necessarily. I can feel things. I'm good with weather. I'm good with geology. And so it all kind of comes together, sort of comes back around uh, or I could just do things, in my opinion, safely. If someone say, you did this, or, oh, man, you're, you're just risking your life. I didn't think I was risking my life. I felt I was in tune. Because, again, it's that internal drive. And you talked to, like you mentioned, uh, Tony, Anton Kropitschka, an avid free soloist and extremely good scrambler. And you talk to any of the people who do free soloing and scramble, they're watching their inner feelings. You know, you're not going to look at the grade. So, well, I, heck, I did 5-7 last week. I can solo 5-7 today. No, 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 <laughs> You don't say that. You always have to judge it by your own inner standards. And if someone's judging high-end activities by an external standard, like they're getting filmed for a Red Bull commercial, ooh, 
bad things happen, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if the money's getting laid down, if the cameras are whirling, whirling, if there's any external goal or motivation, bad things can happen. So you talk to the good people, the people I respect, they're doing this internally. They're internally motivated. And so that's how I was. And so I felt that I was doing things fairly safely. And I did a lot of things. I had a very fast time on the Grand Teton. I went up, you know, Mount Rainier. I did all kinds of things all over the West. And so it finally comes up to the Colorado Trail Run. And that's when we shifted gears. For the very first time in my life, I told someone about it. Hmm. I made a conscious choice. I've been doing this for decades. And now I kind of wanted to, all right, well, you know, what what can we do here? So we told the local paper, the Daily Camera, about it. And we told uh, the Colorado Trail Foundation we'd raise some money. And I called up Patagonia and said, hey, any way you can give me some free gear? And they did. First time I'd ever gotten anything given to me. And you see what I mean? We kind of went public consciously. And it worked. It worked really well. Peter and I became just lasting really good friends and partners. And we uh, set the FKT, a new FKT on the Colorado Trail. And that kind of put multi-day trail running on the map because the very next year we went back on the John Muir Trail. And the John Muir Trail essentially, doing it in four days, is the four-minute mile of this sport. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can do the JMD, JMT under four days. It's like running a mile under four hours, uh, four minutes. And so that was the standard. And Peter and I actually came up short in the year 2000, but Peter went back the next year in 2001 and became the first person to do the JMT under four days, and a new standard was set. It was henceforth done differently. Up to us, people kind of fast-packed it, and they kind of hiked it, did some running, sort of a fast backpack, but we ran it. And we were able to do that because we are very good in the backcountry. We're very comfortable. We're able to go much lighter and faster. That's like 50, like that's 220 miles, something like that, right? Yeah, 223. Four days. So how much are you sleeping at night? Not a lot. Like three hours? Well, or less. that's what had to be learned. Uh, okay. How to do it is what had to be learned. When Peter and I started, we... We had these incredibly good, you know, better runners than me. Tim Twitmeyer, you know, multi-winner uh, of the Western States 100. Blake Wood, a fantastic runner. Blake, better than people realize. They were they were our predecessors. And so we thought, okay, well, let's see what we can do here. And so we decided to start at Whitney Portal on the JMT, which is the uh, southern terminus, at 1 in the morning which we shouldn't have. We didn't have to do that because in the first hour we had picked, I should say, by the time we got to the summit of Mount Whitney, we were an hour and a half ahead of Blake's time. And so we basically went into sleep deprivation to start. (laughs) We we should have just gotten a full night's sleep. So that wasn't super smart. But then the next night we just laid down on the ground, which kind of set a precedent, right? Just got a few hours of winks. And then the second night, my son, Galen, and a friend hiked 13 miles in and met us with a little camp. And then the third night, we're at Red's Meadows, which is the only place in the GMT that a road approaches it. Uh, so that's, that's how we did it back then. Minimal sleep. It, it does become a sleep deprivation game in part. 
and we did not manage sleep well. That's one of the things that you know people learned to do at that time. So are you like running when you finish this? Like are you are you, are you just like zombie Shuffling. like the the zombie <laughs> penguin shuffle? Like well we got we got crushed. I mean we were we were one we got to Red's Meadow, which is three quarters of the way through, and we are one day ahead of Blake. An entire oh. day. <laughs> That's yeah. after three days. We've done three days, we did four. Again, just to be clear, Blake is a better runner than I am. Uh, but we just had a different style. We had a different approach. We, we broke the game open and established the standards, which are now always used. And so we were feeling pretty good. And we kept going, went uh, over Donahue Pass, which is the last pass. And coming down to the Tuolumne, we got hit by this honking hailstorm. It was just a beater hailstorm. Uh, the hail was an inch or two covering the trail. We couldn't. We couldn't survive it. We couldn't stay out. This is right near Tuolumne Meadows, where the road is. So we exited the trail, and there is my son waiting for us in the car. He said, "We, we, we can't go out there." They, they even closed uh, the path, uh, Donner Pass, the highway, because of the storm was so bad, and we couldn't go back out in that. So totally weirdly, we just slept. We just took it off. We just said, okay, we're going to go rent a cabin and go to sleep and come back. So we came back out 24, not 24, like 20 hours later, finished it off and still had the record. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. But we proved what could be done. Yeah. You know, we were were on it for four days because that was the goal. And then next year, I was like, and again, this is a little indication of how I think. I wasn't that interested because I we showed what that you could do it. You know what I mean? I proved the concept. I was at Tuolumne on pace. And it was 23 miles to go. And Peter did come back and finish it. And he actually had a hard time at the end due to what you asked. He had sleep problems. He started hallucinating at the end. And then he had, as he describes it, a transcendental experience where he just felt it all go away. He just felt he broke on through to some other place. So when you get those multi-day things, strange things happen, as you know. So at this point, you're are you 48 when you're doing this? Um, the jam yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Ouch. 49. How, how old is Peter at that time? Peter would have been 38. Peter's 11 years younger oh, than I wow. am. Wow. Okay. I mean, you're, I think it's interesting that you get started doing this stuff when a lot of people might say, oh, yeah, time to like sort of coast into retirement and slow down or take up golf or something like that. And you're, yeah, you the just smart start. people. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the beginning of like fastest known times. And, uh, well, Brendan, here I have a theory. I I want to advance sure. this theory. Yeah, this, this is a good one. There, there's it's this reciprocity, reciprocity, this reciprocal theory, where the older you get, the more time, resources, and knowledge you have, and the less physical ability you have. You see, so there's these two lines. One line is going up. The other line is going down. And so what you want to do is really jump on it when those two lines are intersecting. <laughs> and so I spent you know, most of my first few decades as an adult trying to make a living. You know, I had the farm, I had two kids, and I didn't have that, but I moved to Boulder, trying to make a living, you know, 
got established, bought a house, you know, things like that, yabba, yabba, yabba. And then you get a little bit above the water, you know, your nose is a little bit above the water, you got a little more time, you got a little more experience, your motivation is the same, and suddenly you notice your ability is just plummeting fast, and so you better get on it. And so I think, you know, the late 40s are, can be a prime time because you're more focused. When you're, there's an old saying, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, yes. Because they're just frittering it away. You know, they're, they're just doing stuff and not making not making the most of it. And by the time you're 40s, you're going, whoa, handwriting's on the wall. I better get some stuff done. Yeah, you're giving me hope here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, look at your writing career. You did this, Brendan. Look at your writing mm-hmm. career. I mean, you wanted to be an uh, adventure writer, a freelancer, you know, rejection letter after rejection letter, even though you were a good writer. And now you got the killer blog, Semi-Rad. It's <laughs> well, terrific. So you, I think you're a, good ex- you're a good success story. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, back to talking about you, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you do... Okay. At, at what point are you starting to work for, at what point do you sort of transition into working in the outdoor industry um, that you have this, you take all this experience you have in the mountains and start to work for companies like La Sportiva? Yeah, right. As I mentioned earlier, like all rock climbers, male rock climbers at one time were carpenters, as was I. And I got into the back into the building business. I had a long entrepreneurial career, many, many different startups, working for many different 501c3, something you'll appreciate. I used to work for the Association of Brewers, hmm. which helped start the entire microbrewing industry. Hmm. But I was also doing uh, general contracting at that time. I was a, a certified green builder. So I did energy efficient design and construction. And then, like you said, La Sportiva started to get into running, mountain running specifically. And they, one of the, the person there picked me up as a sponsored athlete, and they had something going on. And I said, you know, I could do that. I could, you know, l- let, me, let me do this. And they said, okay, because, of course, they weren't paying me very much, so why not say okay? But I'm a good business person. I'm a good organizer and communicator. So we had a good time. And La Sportiva, as you know, is an excellent company. They're not corporate owned. It's family owned back in Italy. So they had a different management style. They had a very strong emphasis on quality in their products. So I felt pretty good at that. I enjoyed working with La Sportiva, developing, helping develop their mountain running program. And then after a while, I you know, there's a little bit of turf going on there, a little bit of turf battling uh, among some of the upper staff. And so I didn't feel there was a place I could go further than that. And so I left, went back to building, which I really enjoy the dynamic aspects of general contracting. But then they literally, a friend said, hey, they're looking for someone in ultimate direction. And I said, really? I read the job description. It was me. (laughs) Some of the things I've done were represented in that job description. And so instead of walking in there and the usual BS, I walked in there and said, this is what I'm going to do. I think we're going to do this, this, and that. And if you want this, this, and that to happen, hire me. If you don't, hire someone else. And I went, oh, well, okay, well, I guess we'll hire you. (laughs) (laughs) And so at this point is Ultimate Direction... Um, you were like sort of making your own vests before vests really sort of existed, correct? 
wow, you're right. <laughs> hey, look, you're, Brendan, you do me honor. Star, uh, so much of this is in like Brian Metzler's trail runner article that he did about you. However long right. ago that was. So I'm like just pulling, pulling some gems out of there for sure. I, I should put Brian on retainer. Yeah, as a, your agent. <laughs> you know, Brian. He, Brian needs to be my agent. Totally. You know, Brian once got me the USATF 10K Master Runner Champion. Oh, really? Only because of Brian. Huh. It was at the race. Was at Vale, and I walked in there like I'm not paying that USATF fee. You know me. It's like you know, screw these you know fat cats. And Brian was sitting there. At the table, he was a volunteering at the table. Said, "Buzz, you got to enter. Become a, if you're not a USATF member, you can't win anything." So I don't care about winning. I'm not entering. <laughs> so Brian put it up for me and inter signed me up as a USATF member. And so when I won the Masters race, I became the USATF 10K Masters Trail Champion entirely because of Brian Metzler. That's that's fantastic. So I, I need to put him on retainer here or something. <laughs> But yes, but yes, when we did the John Muir Trail Run, there's all these dorky packs. And boy, you know, this would be a whole podcast about equipment because the equipment was, whoa, it was different. It was not so good. And the packs at that time were packs. It was a rucksack on your back with tons of straps and buckles to keep it from bouncing around, which it did anyway. And so I modified an old Ultimate Direction product and put bottles up front. I had them sewn up front. So again, when we did the GMT, we changed the game. Everyone else would you know, stop, empty the contents of their pack, take out the reservoir, and then attempt to fill the reservoir from a stream, which is actually pretty hard if you've ever tried it. And then you'd stuff the whole thing back in your pack and you know, put any sports drink in it. You know, it tasted terrible because you can't clean it. It gets hot. You can't tell how much you have left. And so I just sewed pockets to the front of my pack. So I'd be coming by a clear Sierra stream. And, you know, me, I'm not going to filter the water. And so hardly without with breaking stride, I could just whip the bottle out of the pack, dip it into the stream, and put it back in and keep going. And so that's really how you get those multi-day runs done. It's not how fast you go. It's how little you stop. Huh. And so, yes, I had modified packs. And then there I am at UD, and I'm looking around. It's all the same old, same old. It, the sport hadn't changed in 10 years, right? And so, as the story is often told, I had three good friends. I had Tony, uh, Scott Jurek, and Peter Backlund. I said, hey, what do you guys think? Let's, let's do some stuff, right? And th this, I like this one. So I'm happy to tell this story because the smartest person, person in the room often is the guy who's sitting there doing a lot of talking. That's not right. The smartest person in the room is the one who's usually listening. And so that's what I did. I brought in Peter, Scott, and Tony and said, what do you guys think? Let's do vests. Let's put bottles up front. Let's make these things super lightweight and form-fitting so they don't bounce. And they said, yeah. And they just got into it. These, I mean, these three guys came in like every couple weeks working on this design. You know, it was a moment in time. It was, it was a moment in history, I think, that changed the world of hydration because nowadays everybody does fests. Uh, every company has them. They're, this is the standard procedure. But if you went back eight years ago, no, you didn't see this. So we, we changed the sport. It was a lot of fun. We did good work. Here, here. Thank you. And 
eventually you become brand vice president at Ultimate Direction, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that's what I was. Um, in reality, they, they, they hired me under a different title and they had someone else who was just losing money. Just He was losing like millions of dollars a year of the brand he was president of and he was the brand vice president. So I said, okay, I'm brand, brand vice president. So I just changed my business card. <laughs> Just with a little little uh, pen, you just yeah. Just well, actually, I, I just I just said I just had him printed and I changed my title to brand vice president. So it's it's it, this is something I learned in China. See, it all ties together, doesn't it? So you're on your bike, you're in China, and you learn a very important rule early on: never ask. <laughs> if you ask, there's only one answer you're going to get: mayo, mayo. No, the automatic answer is mayo. So you don't ask. If necessary, you apologize. <laughs> yes, better to better to ask forgiveness. Yep. Um, and you re- you retired from Ultimate Direction. Was that March of this year? No, so it was just Thanksgiving last year. Oh, Thanksgiving. So okay. not that long ago. Okay. So it's sort of parallel. So before you retired, you are starting to. You and Peter and Jeff are starting to talk about maybe we should put fastest known time website together. Yes. Or like what year is that? That's that's like 2017, 2016. Right. So the, the, the slightly fuller story is the, the, the term came to prominence after the John Muir trail run when I researched the heck out of this, trying to figure out what the previous fastest times were. And I realized as far back as you can go, there's still a fastest time. Like nobody invented this. This is key. Nobody invented mm-hmm. this. This is human nature. This is what we always have done. And so I said, well, this is the fastest known time. So that's all it was. It was literally a descriptor because you have to honor people that came before you that you don't know about. Now, this is also pre-internet. Nowadays, it's like, well, internet, you know, you can't get rid of the internet, but back then you couldn't find out things. So that's how I got into it. Now, as it turned out, you know, about that time, maybe a year before, Bill Wright, a good friend, he's been on our podcast, had used the term fastest known time by me. So the earliest use was by Bill on a website, but we really took that term and went with it. And Peter started uh, keeping track of these fastest known times on pro boards, which is this template. You know, just fill it in. It's a template, very clumsy. But Peter, gosh, he did tons of work. I think he maintained pro boards solo for eight years. And all the time I'm going, we got to do something. We got to do something. But Peter kept, uh, he, he kept it going. Bless him. And finally, when UD started to slacken off enough where I finally got enough time, I said, okay, Peter, let's, let's get it together. You know, let's take this so up to a service level where people can really be able to use this because pro boards is really clumsy and really awkward. And then we thought about, well, we know this like the back of our hand, but web development is not us. And we brought in a partner. Instead of hiring someone, we wanted to bring in someone who's committed who believed in it. And that person is Jeff Schuler. So mark that name. Jeff is really good. He's also a really good runner and scrambler, by the way. So the three of us formed Fastest Known Time LLC. And we went live, I believe it was on April 2nd or May 30th, uh, two years ago. So that would be like 
Uh, 25 months ago, we went live with fastestknowntime.com, and it just obviously became the worldwide source for fastest known times. It's used all over the world. I was in Beijing the time after that. I was being interviewed through a translator in Beijing, and they first thing they asked was about fastest known time, and you know, as, and you don't translate it. It's kind of funny. So they're speaking Mandarin, but then they say <laughs> fastest known time, and so it's uh, FKT. Usually, it's FK, FKT is the term used uh, all over the world. So that's that's great, and I feel good that we did it. Because if we wouldn't have done it, some marketing company would have, some brand or company would have, that might have gotten funky. You know what I mean? Because we're just scrupulously fair, scrupulously balanced. And so I, I'm happy that we're holding down the turf and allowing other people to interface with this database in a way that is fair and credible for everybody. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of, um, I guess to explain it a little bit, basically anybody can say, hey, I um, ran this section of Earth and here's my Strava data or or Sunto data or whatever and submit that to you at fastestknowntime.com and, and then if it's, I guess you vet it a little bit and say, okay, this is the new fastest known time. Yeah, it gets, it gets in, into de- a little bit of details because on one hand, we want this to be very egalitarian. So you know, there's famous FKTs, like Rim to Rim to Rim the Grand Canyon, right? JMT, Appalachian Trail. But we don't want this to be just like another race where you're looking at the people on the podium. No, this is for everybody. And so we wanted people to be able to establish a cool route in their neck of the woods, something that they know about, and then there we go. However, we did have to establish sort of a minimum baseline because otherwise it gets nuts, it just yeah. can get a little out of hand. And so we said the thing really should be five miles long at least or over 500 feet of vert. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, just two months ago, we had someone submit an FKT that took six minutes and 11 seconds. And it's like, you know, I, I don't <laughs> want to burst the bubble, but we're not going to do – I'm sorry, we're not going to put that on the site. So we general, probably 90% of submissions go on the site – 10%, I say, eh, you know, we, we want this to be a, this isn't Strava. You know you mm-hmm. how it is. I love Strava. Strava's fantastic. But you look at those segments and they're all bogus. You know, it's between two mailboxes. You know, some ego-driven biker, you know, put up a million segments on something he can get the king of the mountain on. And who cares? And we want fastest known time to be the opposite of that. We want everything to be credible. So if you go visit Pennsylvania you can look up Pennsylvania and say, oh, wow, look at these routes. These are the ones I want to do. Yeah, it's, literally, it's like a – and there's an element of creativity too as well. Like, And they're literally all over all over the world. But I was just poking around earlier and there's, there's a, a guy who did uh, a marathon in Dry Tortugas National Park, which it looks like he just ran laps around the island because it's so small. Um, he has the FKT for the marathon – on dry tortugas and there's another one where a guy it sounds like yeah he he went to all the path port authority trans hudson uh train stations between well, all of them new york to manhattan um so you have to run between all of the 13 stations and you can take sounds like trains too 
but yeah, he basically ran from Newark to Manhattan. It's 30, 13.8 miles. And, and that's an FKT, which I think is just fascinating and like wonderful that, cause I was like, Oh, I wonder if anybody's done anything in New York city, you know, like what, what would that be? Like the, the loop around central park? Nope. It's, it's this guy doing this. So I'm glad you like that because Peter and I gnash our teeth over this. We just sweat bullets. Oh, really? Well, we, we take it personal. We don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but some things are like, eh, I don't know about that. And so we, we're really not sure. It's, it's actually fairly <clears throat> hard to do. And Brendan, I was just looking at something. Where was this? Belgium. Mm-hmm. And I'm, of course, in Flemish, which I don't read or write Flemish. So I'm just spending a lot of time in each of these submissions, dumping it into Google Translate to figure out what oh, the heck yeah. they're talking about. And then I Google it to see if it's legit. You know, it comes up in Germany and it's Derwiner Schnitzel Hagen das uh, Badenhof. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And you Google search it and boom, there it is. They got trail markings, got start, finish, it's this whole name thing. And this one in Belgium, I was verified because you wrote an article on it. Maybe Switzerland. No, it's Switzerland. Switzerland, <laughs> Brendan, you had written an article in your freelance journal days on this trail. So I thought, well, Brendan wrote an article on it. It's totally legit. God, what would that have been? The harder shot? <laughs> yes. That oh, was it. man. Yeah. I actually... <laughs> That is the only time I've wanted an ice axe walking on a trail with grass <laughs> next to me. Uh, that's, that's deep. It's it's a it's an incredible thing. Uh, huh. Yeah, my friend Dan took me on that. That was that was a blast. It's like ten thousand feet of elevation gain in twenty five miles. I think right. You're right. No, Something you're like looking that. at this yeah. stuff coming in from there. You're going, whoa! I need yeah. to go to Switzerland. Oh, it's yeah. There's so much. I mean, there's stuff in Greenland. I don't even know. It's this oh Baffin Island. There's an FKT and Baffin Island, you know, stuff like that. So it is super fun. And it's like it's like you created your own your own um sport, like I was saying, but then all these other people are super into it as well. Um, including some of the, you know, fastest athletes in the world, but then also the guy who's in lives in New Jersey or whatever and just wanted to run between all the path stations. Super cool. Right. Yeah, right right before you called, I was processing this very thing, Ghost Town Trail, Pennsylvania, which is the railroad bed of some old uh, rail to trail in Pennsylvania. And then right after that was Akinagnango, I can't pronounce it, a volcano in Guatemala, <laughs> where this guy's talking about, you know, you take one, two steps up, one step back, and it's an active volcano. And then minutes later, this thing I can't pronounce in Germany, where again, I had to drop it into Google Translate to figure out what he's talking about. Yeah, so like you say, Brendan, it's all over the place. How often do you think it is a huge question mark for you guys on whether this is something you're going to post or not? So like, I don't know if it makes sense to ask you out of every 10 submissions or like every 100 submissions, how often are you like, ooh, not sure about that one? And then maybe similar question, how frequently do you say, you know, thanks so much for submitting, but I think we're going to decline here? Right. Well, we the good question and that ratio has gone up as we just honestly can't deal with it. 
<laughs> I mean, unfortunately, with the pandemic, all the house elves quit. You know, they're under quarantine. So it's just Peter and I doing this. And it's like, whoa, man, you get to be more than three hours a day as a volunteer doing data entry and your standards start to tighten up a little bit if you get my drift. And so today, uh, I uh, just right before you called, two got pushed back. One of them was a really unfortunate because it was a great mountain bike route. And he didn't realize we don't do mountain bike routes because we can't deal with the time. Another one was local out here in Red Rocks Park, you know, Red Rocks Amphitheater. And he said, this is the longest loop that you can do in Red Rocks during the closures, during the pandemic. I said, well, yeah, yeah I got that. Super. Have a good time. But we can't do that, you know, because next year the pandemic will, the closures will be lifted. And so we have to have a quality route. We won't do a substandard route. So I'd say one out of 10 we are pushing back on. And maybe one out of 20 we're just feeling, you know, upset in our stomach because someone is just thrown down and we're not sure what to do about it. And again, just a couple hours ago, this person in Washington state, he did stairs. He did a stair climb. He saw how fast he could do 20 flights, not in a building or stadium, but in a natural terrain stairs. And he did 20 uh, up and down in 45 minutes. So Peter said, what do you think we ought to do about this? I said, oh, man, I don't know what we ought to do about that. So what do you guys think? This is, yeah, I got you two guys. I don't have to answer this. What do you guys think? Should we allow things like uh, natural stairs, meaning not stadiums or buildings, where you just see how many stairs you can get done in a certain period of time? Boy, is it laps on the same stairwell? Is that what's yeah. going on? I, how yeah. do you, how do you, Mike, how do you prove that, like, how does that show up on a Strava track? Oh, the Strava track is thick. Yeah. No, I looked at the Strava track. <laughs> the Strava track is this very thick line. Uh, I don't know. I'm. I, it's funny you mentioned stairs because I just clicked on this 50K in Pittsburgh. That's all all these old staircases around Pittsburgh, which are outdoors. Huh. 7,000 feet of elevation gain in Pittsburgh. And like, that's an FKT. <laughs> I think that one's way more exciting than somebody doing laps on a stairwell. But that's just me. I'm not. It's not my website. Because uh, if you do, if you say yes to that, then I'm going to go to the the train crossing at 37th uh, Avenue here in Denver and just bust laps out on on the train uh, bridge because I can get all those stairs in and, and then get my FKT, you know, without without being more than two miles from my house. And I don't know. <laughs> right. This I mean, is, Brendan, this is a time honored tradition of trying to game the system. This is this goes back prehistoric times. Just work it. I mean, it's certainly notable, the person doing that stuff, but I don't know if you want to like... It's more it more it's more adventurous to chain together a bunch of stairwells throughout the city, I think, or, or whatever, you know, ah. and, and get over the five-mile mark that you that you said you you have for your... for as, as a minimum. But, boy, yeah, I don't know. That is tough. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because we feel it too. It's, uh, you know, it's grassroots. It's still, it's just people, people like us. And uh, you want, Peter is the guy you want looking at this because he has no ego in it, right? Everyone else has an agenda. Mm. You want the person who doesn't have an agenda to be looking at it. But that means it's also hard on them because decisions are hard if your heart is open. <laughs> 
Mm -hmm. Buzz, I guess I would be curious whether you are seeing or how often maybe you see certain trends or types of submissions, right? Like you, you probably by now, if you're seeing all of these submissions, they start to form patterns and kind of categories and the like. And do you ever kind of find you're like, man, we're just all of a sudden, everybody seems to be into this or that or the other thing. Does it work like that? A little bit. Yeah. I think sometimes there's quick trends like we've had this year, which I'll mention that in a second. Sometimes it's more long-term. For example, when FKTs got started, I think the through hikers were a big part of the scene. Mm -hmm. People were just out there hiking the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, Arizona Trail, things like that. That's, I think, fading a little bit. And then we had a nice, in my opinion, uh, shift towards a little more backcountry technical routes that required a little more navigation and technical ability. Uh, at the same time, we had some of the fast guys get into it. They were throwing down. You know, the, the record on the r to r to r is Jim Walmsley, and you're not going to break that one anytime soon. And the John Muir Trail, of course, it's Francois Dion, and that's a blazingly fast time. So we saw that trend happening from the, the long slog to the top athletes doing FKTs. And now what we're seeing, of course, as you probably have noticed, there's this thing called a global pandemic happening. And so travel is not a happening thing. And national parks aren't so much a happening thing. You can't get a permit for the John Muir Trail. You can't get one for the AT even. And so people are doing much more neighborhood uh, activities. And so the two big things we've seen this spring, which are just sharp trends, one is Connecticut. I was like, what? Why are all these FKTs coming in from Connecticut? I think you just got a group of folks, and they just started pushing each other. They said, hey, you know, I think they have a little club. They have a running club, a running group. And they said, hey, I just did this. And that person says, oh, okay, I'm going to go out and do that. And I think they're just feeding on each other. And so I had a person on our podcast just last time who had done nine FKTs in the last 10 weeks in Connecticut. I thought, wow, that's cool. I like that. And the other one is Germany. Germany is just going berserk. And Sweden is going crazy, along a little bit with Belgium. And we're getting nothing from Italy and Spain. And you know why that is. Yeah, yeah they shut those poor souls down. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you went more than one kilometer from your house, they'd give you a 300-euro fine. So if you look on the recent routes, uh, you and FKTs, you see about 20% of them are coming from Germany and Sweden. And those guys are organized. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's good. <laughs> I kind of like it. So the Yank will submit something. It might be like eight words, and it's wrong. So what I actually say is please resubmit this with complete information, even though I might be thinking different language. <laughs> Meanwhile, and the Germans, they're buttoned up. They always submit a GPX file. They usually submit the photo. The GPX file is perfect. The route is named. And it's just some wacky thing. It seems improbable. I would read a few of these off to you, but they're too hard to pronounce. And then I Google it, and boom, there it is. 
Germany is really together. That, that route has its own website and its own trail markings. It's broken down into nine sections. And you can stay at these little brew pubs at the end of each nine section. So they, they have a different game going. Here in the United States, we're kind of wandering around in the woods. And there they're doing these named and described paths. But then if you, want, if you really want to have fun, go to Switzerland, as Brendan can testify. <laughs> I mean, it's... I wouldn't be the first to say it's beautiful there, um, for sure. I do have one one more question. Um, it's actually sort of a funny story, but I was on a raft trip in the Grand Canyon in 2013, and we stayed at uh, one of the nights we camped at Bass Camp. So we're down there for 28 days or whatever, a lot of time to think. And I started going to my friend Forrest, and I go, you know, it'd be cool, these trails, I'm looking at the map, and I go, it'd be cool to do rim-to-rim just, you know, right here at Bass Camp, you know, there's no bridge like there is where people normally do the rim, rim to rim and rim to rim to rim uh, runs. And I was like, what do you think? Do you think that you like take down like a pack raft? And he said, why don't you just take a dry bag and swim? And then I said, why don't you just bring a bottle of whiskey and wait for a raft <laughs> trip to go by? So you're hiking downhill with your bottle of whiskey and then you just stand on the shore and be like, Hey, can you pull up, you know, and then you get rid of the bottle of whiskey and then you hike up the other side. And I always thought, man, this would be such a cool story to do for some magazine, like rim to rim the hard way. And then, and then I realized you did it in 2014, um, not with the whiskey, but with the dry bag idea. <laughs> you're right. The whiskey is good thinking. That's very sharp. See, that's that's the kind of thinking you want to see. But you know, in backpacking, there's this whole thing about lightweight, ultralight, super ultralight. It was kind of like guys. You know, guys do this sort of thing. They used to have how big their car engine was, then how fast the CPU unit was in their computer. Then it got to be how light their pack was. And my lady friend at the time were out doing a big trip in the winds, Wind River Range, and we thought, you know. If we brought four ounces of tequila, we could just forget the foam pad. It's right? <laughs> weight for weight, isn't it? Eight ounces of tequila, and you can just forget the sleeping bag. Twelve ounces of tequila. You see what I mean? You got to do these weight per weight calculations for sure. to make it come out right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, rim to rim to rim alt is a fabulous route. And we mentioned Jim Walsley a minute ago. And Jim and two of the other cowboys, Coconino cowboys, went uh, down there and had a go at it after we did. They had a really good time. And, and that's, that's, this is the community, right? That's mm -hmm. what we do. We build community. And that's the whole point. Culture comes before sport, in my personal opinion. And so Jim emailed me. You know, Jim is, you know, one of the, is, I think, the best uh, ultra runner in the United States now for a number of years, one of the best in the world. And he asked about it. He asked some questions. We talked about it. And I said, yeah, this, this, and that. And he went down there with his two friends and scoped out the crossing in advance, went back up, geared up properly, made their clever plan, and went and did it and had a good, safe, fun, fast time. So you see what I mean? I, that's a good story if we're going to end to end on because that's culture. It's building community. It's talking to each other. It's taking care of each other. And it's learning and growing with our natural environment. It's not about the bloody number, is it? It's about being part of nature and making peace with yourself and with nature. And, and creativity, I would add, to, to a certain extent for a lot of these 
which is really whiskey fun. bottle is creative. I want you to do this, Brendan. I don't think it, <laughs> there's no way of doing. I'm there's no way of doing it fast at that point. But uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, it would be fun to do someday. But that's an, that's a. It was funny to see that you had just, you'd done it. And like oh yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> um, Buzz, thanks so much. This has been super fun. I'm glad we talked about running sometimes, but I'm glad we talked about all the other stuff too. So thanks, thanks for coming on and taking the time to be here. Likewise, it was a wonderful conversation. You you two are doing a really good job there. And Brendan, your research did me great honor. Brought back some memories I hadn't thought of for a long time. Well, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff to to talk about. So it's it's easy. It's an easy job, I guess I would say. But thanks. Yeah, but Buzz, I think you may have just won for like the broadest, most sweeping conversation we've had on on off the couch. Um, so congrats, you uh, another first for you. <laughs> thanks very much, Jonathan. All right, guys. Well, this has been a pleasure, and I look forward to talking to both of you soon. Thanks. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Brendan and Buzz for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.